0: the book of John, and this is going to be a long read, but, you know, it's good because some of us don't read a lot. <laughs> so uh, this is, you know, you can go to your teacher or tell somebody that you read some stuff today. John chapter 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 4, and we're going to start from verse 1 to... Uh, 26, and then we're going to pick up from verse 39 to 42. John chapter 1, and it reads, and I'm I'm reading from the NASB. John chapter 4, sorry. If I keep saying John chapter 1, forgive me. John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again in Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, or Sichar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and, and said to her, If you knew the gift of God who, is, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, have, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. In verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. Verse 16, he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you for you have had five husbands, and the one who who you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men are to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you, shall you worship the Father, I'm sorry. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I told you this is a long read. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will, incur, he will declare all things to us. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I Who speak to you? Am he? Let's go to verse thirty-nine. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. With them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying. To the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Amen. Let us uh, go, to the, go to God and pray. Father God, we just thank you for this, for this uh, awesome message that's about to take place. We pray, Father God, that you will empty us of all the the thinkings, uh, the the paradigms, the mentalities that we have had before that were unlike you, that did not glorify you, that did not praise you, did not exalt your name. And we pray, Father God, that you will fill us with this new way of thinking, this new understanding of what it means to be connected to you and to know who you are. And, Father God, I just pray that you will just speak through me, that it will not be my thoughts, but it will be your thoughts, that it will not be my words, but it will be your words, that in this teaching this morning, Father God, that many will be blessed, those who have not heard the message of salvation will hear it, those who will understand that it's not by works, but it's completely by your grace, that we are able to come to you and have fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Amen. The title of today's message is called The Father's Agenda. It's called The Father's Agenda. We know at the very heart of the gospel is God who created the heavens and the earth. And he revealed himself to Israel by the name of Yahweh. And the nations have basically rejected this amazing God. They rejected this creator. And so God who loves his creation, who loves his image, his likeness, those who are his image bearers, his likeness, we who are human beings who have rejected him, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to basically bring us back into a right relationship with him. He, bring, he brought us back into a right relationship with him. That is the kind of God that we serve, that he sent Jesus to be the bridge between himself and us, to be the bridge between the holy God and us sinners. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the, that is the gospel in itself. And so we know that in John chapter 1, how it mentions that in the beginning was the word, and, and this word is in the Greek, is this it means is the logos. And the logos is 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 in a sense the, the revelation, the complete revelation of who God is. And we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt with us. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Logos. And in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says how that he is the only one, that the only begotten son is the only one who can reveal the Father. He is the one who explains the Father. He brings everything that was in the presence of the Father to us who have never been in the presence of the Father. So when Jesus speaks, he is communicating the words of the Father. When he heals, he is conveying the heart of the Father. When he goes anywhere, he is demonstrating the movement of the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 10, and, and let, me get it, let me get that in the uh, complete Jewish Bible, the CJB, if you have it. John chapter 14, verse 10. I just like the way that this version actually puts it. Do we have it? We don't have it? I'll read it. It's all good. In John chapter 14, verse 10, it says, don't you believe that I am united with the Father and the Father united with me? What I am telling you, I am not saying of my own initiative, the Father in me is doing his works. So the entire gospel of John can be summarized in three ways, and you can go to the uh, the first slide. Got it up? I can't see it. You see it? Going straight to the slide. First slide. The entire gospel of John can be summarized in three ways. One, that Messiah Yeshua is the Son of God. Two, that the Father, that he is the Father's love to the nations. The Messiah Yeshua is the embodiment of the Father's love to the nation. And three, that we can know God the Father by encountering his son or by his son or through his son amen that is the complete summary of the book of john you can summarize it in those three sentences he is the son of god he is the embodiment of the father's love and we can know the father by the son another understanding you can go to the next slide is that the messiah is the invitation to the father he is also, he is the invitation of the Father. You ever get those uh, cards in the mail? Um, somebody is about to get married, and they say, you know, they want you to come to the, to the wedding. They send a card. These days, they probably just send email or an evite. And you say, hey, just come to my wedding. And that is an invitation. You are being invited. Well, Jesus is the invitation of the Father. Jesus is God inviting you into his love. So as we go back to John chapter 4, this this passage opens up with Jesus Christ at the acceleration of his ministry, leaving Judea, heading towards Galilee by going through Samaria. Samaria is is a hostile territory. As Donald Trump would put it, it's an S-hole country. (laughs) Your president said it. I didn't. The residents, the folks who live there are second-class citizens. They're half-breeds. They're viewed as not worthy of God's love by the religious right, such as Nicodemus, who Yeshua had to declare God's love of the world to him in the, in the, in the chapter before. And due to the hostility that existed between the Jews and these marginalized, disenfranchised Samaritans, most Jews would rather add a week to their journey when leaving Jerusalem by crossing over to the east side of the Jordan, going around Samaria, and then go back into Israel. That's just how much hostility existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, that rather than going through that neighborhood, they rather go around the neighborhood. It's like saying, I hate Doraville so much that when I'm leaving uh, Marietta, rather than going uh, going through 285 to get to Doraville, I go 85 south, go downtown, swing around to Stone Mountain just to get to Lawrenceville. I hate Doraville that much. Yes, sir. <laughs> For some of those who haven't been in Atlanta that long, just get a map. You'll understand. <laughs> If you hate Atlanta traffic, you do not want to go another route just to get to your location. You just want to go straight. However, as we sung this morning, the overwhelming, the never-ending, reckless love of God brings Messiah Yeshua into Samarit- into Samaria, into Samaritan territory. Him being one united with the Father, as we read in John chapter 14, verse 10, communicates to us that the Father desires to engage the Samaritans, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, those cut off from the privilege of God's covenant with Israel. He comes to Sychar, which is near the ruins of Shechem. Some scholars say that Sikhar is Shechem, while others say that Sikhar is outside of Shechem. And I bring this up because Shechem is significant for many reasons. Go to the next slide. Shechem is the first is first mentioned in the Bible as the place where God promised Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan, which becomes the land of Israel. And this is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6 to 7. It's also the first place where Abraham demonstrated worship to Yahweh by building an altar. It was near Shechem where Jacob dealt with idolatry by burying, burying idols under an oak tree. It was at Shechem that Israel, of reaffirmed their allegiance to Yahweh through Joshua and the commitment to the covenant by putting away idols. And that's in Joshua chapter 24, verse 24 to 25. It was also at Shechem where King Jeroboam led the 10 northern tribes of Israel soon to be known as Samaria, into idolatry in order to prevent them from going to Jerusalem to worship. So we see here that there's this, this, there's this theme of true worship to Yahweh and the issue of idolatry that takes place in Shechem. And this is where you see the split between the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which in, in which one nation that was united due to a lack of worship in spirit and truth becomes divided. This is when the fidelity of God is no longer seen in our worship, that our relationship with God and each other becomes distorted. It, be, it breaks down. It becomes divided. So what binds us together is our devotion to God, But what breaks us or separates us is our lack of our devotion to God. This is why praise and worship is so important. It is a time of being able to worship God directly, but also in union with each other. When I'm worshiping God, I'm not thinking about the beef I have with the person that's standing next to me. When I'm worshiping God, my focus is on God. And because I love God, I extend that love to those who are around me. It is a time where we can love one another, hug one another, hold hands, because we're we're declaring the awesome promise of God that he loves us, and because he loves us, we can love one another. However... The division of the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans or the house of Israel and the house of Judah took place over the issue of worship. The Samaritans are a reminder of Israel's infidelity to God in which those things we we worship in God's place now become the things that enslave us, in which the nation whose God Israel found appealing became the same nations who God would use to punish Israel, which results in the Samaritans. Let me put it this way. When a married man cheats on his wife with a woman that is not his wife, and a child is produced as a result of that, of that uh, infidelity. What do you think would happen between the relationship of the the household of the married man and his wife, the, the children that are produced in that household versus the children in, I'm sorry, well, in contrast with the relationship of the child that was produced out of infidelity? There's a lot of uh, hostility that's there. I've seen in cases where um, the children of the correct relationship, if we put it that way, um, are very hostile to the children of the, of the relationship that, w- that occurred out of infidelity. I've seen people who um, basically blame the child, the, the child that was born out of infidelity for all the problems in the relationship between their parents. And we see that played out with the Samaritans. They are a result of infidelity. Israel decided they wanted to go after other gods. and The outcome are the Samaritans. So we see, and, and this is in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23 to 23, how God empowers, and, and we can go to the next slide, God empowers the Assyrian king to remove northern Israel from the land due to their worship of other gods only a remnant of Israel remained. Then the king of Assyria imports people from another nation into Israel, and they begin to inhabit these Samaritan cities, and they bring with them their idols. Not only do they bring their idols, they now intermarry with the Israelites that are remaining in the land. then God in his anger sends lions into Samaria to now deal with the idol worship that was taking place. So as a result, the Assyrian king, out of a a sense of superstition, he sends back out of one of the exiles, a priest back into Israel with the assumption that if this priest can now teach, um, to now teach the the um, the new immigrants and those who have been in the land how to worship Yahweh then the uh, issue of these lions that have been attacking these idol worshipers would cease in other words, this is a result of my superstition I'm going to correct the problem by now sending back someone who knows how to worship Yahweh and as a result of them sending the result of the Assyrian king sending back um, this 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 priest, um, the worship of Yahweh gets instituted. But not only is it instituted the worship of Yahweh, but idolatry is now now merged with the worship of Yahweh. So the worship of of Yahweh is mixed with idolatry. This is what you call syncretism. Syncretism occurs when when you merge the worship to the true God with idolatry, basically uniting two systems of belief as one or including idols into the belief system. When we justify our worship of things with Scripture, then we are engaging in syncretism. If we glorify our idols and we justify it with Scripture, we are engaging in syncretism. So when I hear that uh, America is a Christian nation I I tend to laugh at times because (laughs) we place a high priority on success and money our God is the American dream and and we merge our worship of God with the American dream and then we appease our conscience by placing in God we trust on our money (laughs) and so our worship has to project Uh, It has to project this image of money, power, and success, the American dream, in order to be attractive. It's called the capitalist gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel that the capitalists love. This is why the American evangelical church is silent when that individual that lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is saying what he chooses to say, and we say nothing back. We say that as long as our taxes is low and my, and, and, and my business is doing well, that God is on the throne. The Messiah has now returned back to the White House, and the spirit of God must be upon Donald Trump. Syncretism. Now, before Pastor Charles throws a brick at me, let you know, because <laughs> I see his eyes, <laughs> I am not 100% against capitalism, you know. I think capitalism is a great thing. It inspires people to be, you know, entrepreneurs and and creative and innovative and things like that. If you have stocks, your stocks are good. What I am saying is that when we begin to esteem a system of worship. Where we glorify money, power, and success over the things of God and include that in our worship, we get a distorted image of who God is. You can hide your brick now. (laughs) America prospered under this capitalistic theology. This is why men like George Whitfield, Richard Fuller, Thornton Stringfellow can preach Jesus and own slaves and say that God is prospering them. Which is very similar to the gospel we preach in many of our churches today, a gospel that praises the dominance and the subjugation of other nations by America, labeling the weak and others who we don't agree with as the enemy. You know? It's problematic. The gospel in which gun rights is on the same level with the adoration of Jesus. Where card carrying members of the NRA are also sitting in churches on Sunday morning not concerned about changing their policy. They're not affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They love dominance. That gun gives them power. They have to show that we are a mighty force to be reckoned with. I remember I, was, I sat under a pastor in Texas who, who put a picture on his Facebook with him holding a rifle. My wife is laughing. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> because it wasn't about his American rights, not against the Second Amendment. It was all about the show of power that he was trying to depict. And we claim that we are aiming for peace, but true peace will be achieved when the worship of Yahweh becomes the number one agenda and the central focus. Amen? Amen. This is why worship is so critical. I don't care whether you put a, a Democrat or a Republican in the office or offices, they will never have a solution that will permanently fix the issues of this nation. Only the glory of God will be made manifest and heal this land by means of true worshipers. One of the things I remember, Pastor, always preaching is that that the reason why missions exist is because worship is absent. In other words, in other words, worship is in other words, missions is the initiation, uh, the initiative by which worship in the earth will be restored. Missions is not just going to a foreign country overseas; it's also going to your next door neighbor who doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been established upon the grace of God. So when Messiah Yeshua visits Samaria, it's because Yahweh intends to fulfill a purpose that he made through Jeremiah, a new covenant based upon grace resulting in true worship. So Messiah Yeshua visits uh, Samaria and he connects with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, a place of, of commonality between the Samaritans and the Jews because Jacob, who is their forefather, they can identify with as the children of Israel. Yeshua, the son of God, but according to the flesh, a Jewish man engages a Samaritan woman, not as a foreigner, a half-breed, a second-class citizen, but speaks to her as a sister and one who should be a part of the covenant people. Let me remind you that, it is this, that this encounter is the father's agenda. Pay close attention to the play on words. John chapter 4, verse 20. It states that our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She appeals to the traditions of her fathers who were living in rebellion, who followed idolatry. She appealed to the division between her community and the Jewish community at the well, the place where a commonality should have been established because Jacob was an ancestor to both the Jews and the Samaritans. She wants to bring up... The tarnished worship, the idolatry, the practices of the fathers who came after Jacob who did not worship Yahweh according to how Jacob worshipped Yahweh. And yet Yeshua says in John chapter, John chapter 4, the 21st verse, he says to her, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such the people The father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She talks about her fathers and Yeshua talks about his father. This is an issue of father's. She, she wanted to worship through her fathers, but the Messiah was letting her know that worship done by her fathers lacked truth and spirit. And his father is not moved by worship that is not grounded in truth, not grounded in the reality of who he is. The father's agenda was to reveal who he truly is, raw and uncut, so that the Samaritan people could worship him in right relationship. Right relationship with God and with their Jewish counterparts. God was not seeking to have a division continue, God was looking for a way to bring those who have been divided back together. The Samaritans' form of worship was distorted, it was damaged, it was filled with confliction and devotion, it was not authentic. Their worship was done on Mount Gerizim, which was rooted in rejection, rebellion, and separation, not based on truly knowing Yahweh. They went there in an attitude of separation from God's people and his covenant. This is the story behind every religion in this world. This is the story of the religion of man. Worship rooted in rejection, rebellion, and separation. Worshiping in rejection, rebellion, and isolation is not the plan of God. This is why every religion, spiritual movement, philosophy has a bit of truth, but at the very root of them is rejection, rebellion, and separation from the true God. White supremacy exists because of rejection, rebellion, and isolation. The nation of Islam exists because of men who walk in rejection, rebellion, and isolation. Orisha, Osun, Santaria, Vondun, all these spiritist cults and religions exist because of rebe- rejection, rebellion, and isolation. I hear it all the time, my, my brothers and sisters that are in the, the conscious community that are now claiming that they're woke. <laughs> they woke, I woke up. <laughs> they're woke because they read a few books or watched YouTube videos by pseudo-scholars with no credible background in research who claim that Jesus is a myth. That Jesus is a myth created by the white man to keep us black folks as mental slaves, that we should go back to worship and embrace the spirit of our ancestors, worship or seek our inner divinity or our spirituality, they woke. That's what they say. Next slide. And this is a quote from this Atlanta rapper. His name is Killer Mike, and he was promoting this Netflix series called Trigger Warning. And he stated this, he stated, I wanted to free black people of the image of white Jesus and the bondage of Christianity. What I ended up discovering is that not only is that image repress- oppressive because it denies the identity of myself, all of it hurts the followers. Then he, gets to, then he goes on to say this, there's a shrine dedicated to my grandmother and my mother in my house. There's a whole prayer room in my house. It's filled with all women figures of divinity he's woke but he sounds like he's still asleep (laughs) he he leaves one form of oppression and goes to another form of oppression his grandmother is dead his mother is dead those women of divinity that he's proclaiming are divine are dead they can't answer his prayers but he's woke (laughs) A misconception of the Son leads us to a misconception about God because God is revealed in and through the Son. And he is the invitation of the Father, engaging this Samaritan woman and many like her, both men and women who cannot know the Father because of our distorted perceptions. Killer Mike is no different than the Samaritan woman. Buddha is no different than the Samaritan woman. Louis Farrakhan is no different than the Samaritan woman. We are no different than the Samaritan woman if we have a distorted picture of God. Our ability to worship God in spirit and truth is based on the true revelation of the son. The reason why Killer Mike says what he says is because he does not have a true revelation of the son. A lot of times we're listening to songs that do not glorify God because the singers or the artists do not have a true revelation of the son. Worshiping in spirit and truth means worshiping according to the revelation of the Son of God. The Apostle Paul, a former domestic terrorist and part of the Jewish far right prior to his conversion, would have told you that he knew God. He studied the Torah day in and day out. He attended synagogue on a regular basis. He was connected to the high priest. He had degrees. He was zealous for the law. Nobody loved Yahweh more than him. But at the end of the day, he couldn't worship the Father in spirit and truth because he did not have the revelation. Of the Son, but when he did, but when he did, look at look at this. Not only did he get a revelation of the Father when he got a true revelation of the Son, he understood himself in that revelation. First Timothy chapter uh, First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. This is what Apostle Paul writes. First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, this is the realest thing that I ever wrote. Pay attention. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim him among the Gentiles or the nations, the true revelation of the son changed the apostle Paul in and out. He was a Jew. He knew the law. This law testified of the son. But until he caught the true revelation of the son, that that, that understanding that he had of the law, which gave him the authority, so to speak, to go and kill those who were accepting and following the Messiah, when that revelation came to Apostle Paul, his life changed. That revelation changed his world. It rocked him. So, worshiping in spirit and truth means worshiping according to the revelation of the Son of God. Worshiping in spirit and truth also means living according to the spirit of Yahweh's grace, the grace of God. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. So, we have the revelation of the true Son of God. It also means worshiping or living a lifestyle according to the spirit of Yahweh's grace. Verse 31 of Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them declares Yahweh, but this is the covenant, verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them. To the greatest of them declares Yahweh, for I will forgive them, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In other words, yes, I know you got Jewish rabbis, but when you know me, you won't need the Jewish rabbis anymore. Yes, I know you got seminaries, but when you know me, there's nothing new that seminary can really teach you about me. Yes, I know that, you, that, you, that you've been, been sitting under all these teachings and, and, and you want to know more and more. But when you know me, nobody will have to teach you anything new about me because you know me. I'm going to write my, my laws on your heart. I won't have to tell you to do the right thing. You'll just do the right thing because you know me. One of the saddest things when I, is when I see people who come to church and hear the truth day in and day out but do not have his spirit. We don't demonstrate love towards one another. We are cliquish. We have no empathy. We're not concerned about the sufferings of others. We don't model the virtuous aspects of God's law. Love God. Love your neighbor. Don't walk according. He's basically saying don't walk according to legalism by making other people earn your love and respect. Love others because God empowers you to love them. The purpose of the spirit of grace is is, not, is, to model, is to model the grace of God as seen in Jesus. Grace doesn't just make us right with God. Grace makes us right with each other. Worship according to the spirit and truth is a lifestyle, not just on a Sunday morning 20-minute experience. Are we worshiping in spirit and truth? Are we living according to the spirit of Yahweh's grace? If you truly have grace, you won't have a desire to sin anymore. We got to settle that issue. I'm tired of people using that excuse that, uh, that grace will cause us to sin. No, that's not grace. Grace empowers you to live right. And when you struggle, grace puts you back on the path. Amen. You don't lose because of grace. You get at it. Grace upon more grace upon more grace to live a life that is empowering. Amen. Living according to the spirit of Yahweh's grace made it possible for a Jewish man to dialogue with a Samaritan woman in her neighborhood. Even in a context that seems hopeless and hostile, how many of us are ready to carry the love of God to the LGBTQ, e, community? How many, how, many, how many of us are willing, how many of us are willing to put down our picket signs and pray with those who are seeking abortions? Oh, it's getting touchy now. <laughs> how many of us are ready to pray with those who say that I want to marry my same-sex, co- my same-sex partner? How many of us are ready to exemplify the love and the grace of God? How many of us are ready to evangelize in trailer parks and Section section 8 apartment complexes and eat food like string bean casseroles? Hmm. Because worshiping in spirit and truth means going beyond cultural barriers because God is spirit. He is not bound to time and space or systematic boundaries or social limitations. He is the God of all people. He is the unrestricted God and therefore we must be unrestricted people in communion with him. Racism is inconsistent with his spirit. Classism is inconsistent with his spirit. Intolerance of another's humanity is inconsistent with his spirit. Sexism is inconsistent with his spirit. Putting others down to pump ourselves up is inconsistent with his spirit. Because God wants true worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for opening, us, opening our eyes to seeing exactly what, what it means to be in, in right fellowship with you what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. That it means having the right revelation of who your son is. And it also means, Father God, that we're living according to to the covenant of grace. Father God, I just pray in the name of Jesus as your spirit begins to search the hearts of each and every individual that's in this room, that you will begin the work of grace in their hearts. Father God, I'm praying for those who do not know who you are. They may have made a confession of faith. They've, they may have thought they believed in you, but along the way, Father God, they struggled. They struggled. They couldn't really see you in the midst of it all. And Father God, I'm just praying for them that your spirit will begin to arrest their hearts, Father God. That they will know you, that they will see that love that you have for them, a love that is according to your agenda. And as we keep our eyes closed, I'm, I'm making a call out to those who say, you know what, Lee, you're speaking to me.